Hello, Internet Denizens. I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I talked with Amanda Silberling about how changes to Dungeons & Dragons licensing could affect content creators, and Rebecca Bellin comes on to talk about how a tweet has gotten Elon Musk into legal trouble again. Community chat platform Discord has acquired Gas, a relatively new social network designed specifically to inject some positivity into teen interactions online. Gas lets users sign up with their school, then add friends and answer polls about classmates. Poll questions are positive in nature, though, and people voted as top choices get an anonymous message, essentially giving them a compliment. The Gas app was founded by Nikita Beer, a serial entrepreneur who previously founded a remarkably similar app called TBH that he sold to Facebook in 2017. More on this from Amanda Silverling on TC. Antivirus giant Norton reported a data breach affecting thousands of customers this week. The company said that Norton LifeLock customers specifically were impacted, which is an identity theft and general cybersecurity suite of services. Norton says that users may have had their accounts accessed as far back as December 1st, and it impacted users who didn't have two-factor authentication enabled on their accounts. Data access may have included first name, last name, phone number, and mailing address. More from Zach Whitaker on TechCrunch. Amazon has been fined by U.S. worker health and safety regulator OSHA for failing to provide safe working conditions. The agency found that three Amazon warehouses violated legislation in place to protect workers, resulting in an ongoing pattern of worker injuries. Amazon received a $60,269 fine for the violations, which definitely doesn't seem like that much, but the company still said that it disagrees with OSHA's assessment and intends to appeal. Check out more on TC from Amanda Silberling. Robot Funhouse Factory Boston Dynamics is back again with another video showing off amazing technological feats that also strike fear deep into human hearts. This time it's Atlas, the company's humanoid robot, not to be confused with Spot, the dog bot it's also famous for. Atlas has been outfitted with rudimentary hands in this demo, large grippers that it can use to pick stuff up and then drop them elsewhere. In the video, Atlas performs a bunch of tasks, including moving lumber around a construction site and building makeshift bridges it then runs across. Read more and watch the video on TechCrunch in the article by Matt Burns. First up, Amanda Silberling is here to talk about how Dungeons & Dragons creators are fighting to keep their livelihoods. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? It is going well. Are you ready to roll for initiative? Yes, I am. I understand that reference. <laughs> hey. <laughs> this is, uh, we had some back channel about this because I'm like, I would call myself, I don't know, D&D curious or D&D fluid, maybe approaching, but I've never actually like played a D&D game, but I like Let's Play podcasts and I like a lot of the surrounding content, which I think is very relevant, actually, to the topic at hand. But it means I get most of the jokes, but not all the jokes, let's say. We should make a <laughs> TechCrunch D&D campaign. Yeah, well, I mean, that would help a lot uh, <laughs> professionally. Yes. Um, this is really great for the overall productivity of TechCrunch.com. <laughs> yeah, right. And we need a lot of help there. But <laughs> let's talk about specifically at issue. This was last week, but there's been a couple beats and it's an ongoing thing. I think still super relevant. Do you want to tell us what happened last week that caused kind of a commotion among the creator community? Yeah. So as you have already exemplified, Dungeons and Dragons has become very popular in recent years, even though it's existed since the 70s. But because of so many content creators that are making like really big podcasts and shows and like various kinds of content. 
around Dungeons and Dragons, there's been such an uptick in the audience. And as a result of that, now Dungeons and Dragons, which is owned by Wizards of the Coast, which is a subsidiary of Hasbro, is like, hey, these other people are making money off of content. We should make that money too. Right. And since the year 2000, there has been something called the Open Gaming License or the OGL that basically makes it allowed for someone to be like, hey, what if we played Dungeons and Dragons, but it took place in like an undersea world? Mm. I'm going to write a book about that and publish it and people can buy it. Like that's allowed to happen because of the OGL. Now, since... Hasbro slash Wizards of the Coast are looking to find new ways to monetize D&D. They are flirting with the idea of changing the OGL to require royalties from creators and to own the license to any third-party content. And this caused a big uproar in the creator community. And this is an ongoing issue. To, in short, where we are right now is that There was a leak of the new OGL last week, Mm -hmm. and then Dungeons & Dragons as a company was, like, very silent about it, and then they were like, ha-ha, we messed up, still working on it. (laughs) There's, like, not really an indication of what's going on, so there's just been a lot of discourse among D&D creators about this and fans who love their third-party content and want to support these creators. Yeah, they. so it was one of those things where you're like almost suspicious of did someone like soft leak it so that they could gauge community response and how bad it would actually be were it to come out in full but it's already a big enough blow to their reputation and to the kind of sentiment that that seems maybe unlikely maybe it's more that like somebody who actually loves the creator community inside the company was like well maybe get a load of this but that's a lot of conspiracy theory from me for so early in the segment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was, like, they sent this document to creators that were, like, particularly big creators that Mm. they wanted feedback from. Oh, okay, so they intentionally did it. I see, yeah. Yeah, but then technically those creators were under an NDA and, like, they were told to sign this document as though, like, this is a document that is coming out. But then now Wizards of the Coast is being like, oh, it was a draft. But like mm. the creators that I have spoken to who received this document have said that it was sent with a thing to sign it. Right. And right. that does not make us seem Why like. Why would you it's sign a draft. a draft? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is just like a really interesting case of like a creator community having a difficult time interfacing with the owner of the IP. But it's also interesting because when we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, we're not talking about like Harry Potter, where it's... It's not just characters and license. It's like an entire... It's like mechanics. It's the system. It's, I guess, closer to the metal, right? Yeah. Or even like if you wanted to compare it to a game like Pokemon, like... Mm. Yeah, if I go and start painting Pikachu portraits, then I do do this. Nintendo by the way. could. This is something I personally <laughs> do do. Yes, <laughs> my Pikachu portraits. <laughs> like there is a plausible way that Nintendo would be like, "Hey, stop." That's but, recognizably Pikachu. It's our IP, right? Which, like, and the, yeah. that's. An, I mean, 
we won't get into it here, but Nintendo has had a very fraught relationship with creators as well over the years, right? And there's been a lot yeah, of back I mean, and forth there. But. Yeah, or like if you look at a company like Disney, where like Disney mm. has literally sued like daycares for having Minnie Mouse murals in right, the daycare. Right. Yeah, yeah. A Tumblr. <laughs> just look at Tumblr circa whatever. Just look at Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, just look at Tumblr period. There you go. That's all. Yeah, but because Dungeons & Dragons is a game system, like, there are some characters in some official material released by Wizards of the Coast where there's, like, Tasha is a sorcerer sure. and there's some spells that are, like, Tasha's hideous laughter, which... I know that Tasha's a person, but I don't know anything about Tasha. I just know that because one of my characters has that spell. Like, there was a fireside chat in which Hasbro kind of talked about their business strategy to investors. And the president of Hasbro was like, we want D&D to be a franchise like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. But it just literally can't be that because there's no unified story. Like, all fans of Lord of the Rings are going to be like, hell yeah, The Hobbit, we know that, right. we, we've we read that. But with D&D, it's like, the way that I play is totally different from the way that other people play, and it's just not the same thing, and it's weird to see a company try to turn this into a larger media franchise. One that essentially is inescapable. Like, you talk about the McElroy brothers in there and the adventure zone, right. Which is long running. Yeah. Let's play podcast, but their stuff varies so wildly, like season to season or world to world or whatever. Right. Where you're, it boggles the mind to think like they could come and make a claim of like this thing about, I'm making this up because I'm like behind on McElroy, but like <laughs> a world of dolphin gods or whatever has like any resemblance to like the original D and D sort of milieu, which is very much itself just inspired by Lord of the Rings, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure there was some kind of lawsuit between D&D and the Tolkien estate at some point. Mm -hmm. Don't at me. I think that's <laughs> correct. But I mean, it sounds logical enough to be essentially correct, so that's, that's fine. No ats for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I think embedded in that is also the fact of, like, D&D as a game system has a long history of like very casual racism that comes up within the canon of fantasy literature where Absolutely. it's like anti-Semitism. Yep, they've the definitely been dinged down before. Right. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like all the goblins just happen to be Jews and they all work at the bank. Thank you, JK Rowling. They, they published a book about like, oriental adventures for many many years before realizing hey maybe the word oriental shouldn't refer to people right it's partially because of the fan community that D&D has been able to in some ways overcome those things mm -hmm. because fans make third party content that is like hey what if we had these fantasy creatures that aren't like yeah. coded as slaves in a way that is kind of racist right. and what if D&D but not racist yeah right yeah what if D&D but not racist <laughs> and <laughs> And even like games like Pathfinder, which is published by Paizo, is made by former D&D employees. It's just kind of like you can't really imagine D&D without the fan community. And then this impacts creators because like one of the creators I talked to who is the editor in chief of Mage Hand Press and organized a open letter that was signed by like over 60,000 people that was basically saying like, hey, Wizards of the Coast, this sucks. He told me that if the OGL update went into effect, then overnight he would have to like take down his Patreon, take down two Kickstarters. Right. I mean, another interesting thing here is that 
the royalty clause in the quote-unquote draft doesn't kick into effect until you make $750,000. But that's in gross revenue, Mm. not like profit. And that sounds like a lot of money. And it's like, yeah, if you're making like three quarters of a million dollars, then sure, you can probably stand to give up a royalty. But in reality, what's happening is maybe like this guy, Mike Hollick, who runs Mage Hand Press, is running a Kickstarter that gets $700,000, but in reality, like $650,000 of that is going towards making the thing and fulfilling all of these orders. And then- And he has to pay the royalty on the gross, not on the net profit, right? So it's like, maybe he ends up with nothing. Or And is there a time limit too? Is it like lifetime? Could it be like- Whenever you hit that 750, like, you know, even if it takes 10 years to do so. Right. Yeah. So that's like also kind of shitty. right? Yeah. Well, I think it only it kicks in at like the first dollar above 750,000. But like in a lot of cases, like the margin isn't even that great on these projects that have that kind of like gross revenue. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, everything about it seems like. You actually link in the article at the bottom two other very recent stories about Wizards of the Coast and, you know, various moves they've made lately to increase their profitability or the money they recoup from this. And one was like the live action series. They also have the the movie coming out, right? Yeah. Uh, So it's clear they're like, in general, moving towards like, let's monetize this more than we have been thus far, right? Like, let's kind of squeeze every last dollar out of it, perhaps. Yeah. And I mean, that's why it's so weird that there's like a live action movie and a live action TV series, because like, there's no main character of D&D. Right, right. I think they might have names, but they're referred to as classes a lot of the places that I've seen, right? Yeah, I mean, Do they even like, have names in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> I Like, I don't know who the main character of this movie is going to be. Like, I mean, yeah. you do have these characters. Like, there's, like, a an evil vampire villain that people like. But it's, like... Well, in the... In, uh, Stranger Things. Those yeah. villains are like pulled from the actual monster books or whatever, like the, their I've, original creations. I've actually never that. seen Stranger Things, but that is another yeah. reason why D&D became more popular because apparently it was in Stranger Things. And also yeah, it was like vaguely in Riverdale as like griffins and gargoyles, but it was very satanic panic-esque. See, that's how you rip somebody <laughs> off. You yeah. just stay just fair of actionable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Riverdale has a whole host of problems that are. <laughs> <laughs> but so what do we think is going to be the outcome? Do you think that, are they going to go completely back on this, do you imagine? Or do you think that, because I mean, their statement, you know, they kind of like tried to make light of it a bit. Like they had the we rolled a one joke in there. Like without the community, essentially, you know, they're in big trouble, right? So they need to keep them on their side, but do you think they go all the way back or do you think they just kind of modify this but still try to impose some kind of profit sharing or something on people that build on their IP or what they consider their IP? I think that they're still sort of in a wait and see stage. It's hard to say what's going to happen because on one hand, I think it's a big deal that they're even saying, hey, we messed up, even if they said, hey, we messed up in a way that like... People were saying it's sort of like when your shitty ex is like, hey, like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but also it's Mm. not my fault. Like, that's kind of the vibe. Right, right, right. Like, they've already said in that update that they aren't going to impose the royalty structure and that they were going to change the wording that implied that if you make third-party content, then D&D owns it and can reprint it without your permission, which that's like... 
That was a wild clause in the original draft, quote unquote draft. So I do think that some progress is being made, but it's hard to say like what exactly that will entail. And then another issue at play is there was an email from allegedly somebody who works at Wizards of the Coast who allegedly sent this email to some people in the D&D community and was like, hey, they're looking at subscriptions to D&D Beyond, which is their, like, online service. Hmm. And then people started canceling their subscriptions. And after that all was happening was when they released the statement. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So it seems like they're looking at, like, are people really going to leave D&D or is this all just internet outrage? And people canceling their subscriptions seems to indicate to them that this isn't just, like, temporary outrage. Right. It's the, yeah, it's the classic, like, if you really want to do or motivate, especially, you know, for profit companies, you hit them in the wallet, right? So, yeah. 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 All right. Well, we, we will keep an eye on this. You will keep an eye on this, I'm sure. And we'll also possibly just have a Let's Play podcast for our TechCrunch D&D hey, game. I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> Uh, so stay tuned. It could be like we're playing in like a dystopian Silicon Valley and we're journalists that are trying oh. to um, take down the empire of... I don't uh, want this. I, I want I it to be relaxing. <laughs> so no yeah, thank you. Maybe, yeah. The, the campaign I'm in right now is about pirates. So we can just be pirates. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. Always great to talk to you and appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about D&D. Next, Rebecca Bellin is explaining how a tweet could cost Elon Musk billions. Hi, Rebecca. How's it going? Hey, Daryl. It's going great. How you doing? Good, 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 good. So we have a court case going on, and it's one of Musk's many ongoing legal proceedings. I feel like he's in a bunch of them in various stages of completion. Yeah, I feel like I need to <laughs> right now, make but... a mind map to try to keep track of them all. <laughs> Yes, but this one just, well, just started the actual court proceedings and it's over a tweet. Probably a lot of our listeners remember it's Elon's famous funding secured tweet about potentially taking Tesla private at the joke price. But also he was serious, I guess. I don't know. At the time of $420 a share. And that was a long time ago now, if people are aware of the share price currently. But yeah. What's going on? What are we hearing out of the trial thus far? Well, so far, there's been two days of the trial. First day was just jury selection, and the second day was opening statements. And we're hearing from one of the main plaintiffs of the case. His name's uh, Glenn Littleton. Mm-hmm. And he is suing because he said that he and a couple of other people had taken Elon Musk at his word when he said funding secured. And decided to sell a bunch of their shares because they were thinking they couldn't mm. they couldn't afford to stay in the game. So that's what we're hearing from their side. They ended up losing millions, thousands of dollars. It's it's not entirely clear how much money they ended up losing here, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the concern on their end. And then on the other hand, Musk's lawyers are arguing that, you know, he was intending to take the company private. He didn't knowingly say funding secured without. Yeah, he actually thought that funding was secured, essentially, is what they're saying. Right. Or they're saying that it was kind of a slip of the hand, that he maybe misspoke. It was the wrong words to use, but he was pretty sure on his intent, and he was pretty sure that he would have had the backing of the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, Mm -hmm. which is 
they were already an investor in Tesla. So yeah, it's kind of a, I guess the language of the tweet is really coming under a microscope here. Right. Yeah. I mean, because there's not much to work with. Like it's a couple sentences. One's not Mm -hmm. even really a proper sentence. I don't know if it technically is one or not, but like. Non sequiturs. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. It's like, you know, he's missing the key parts of the sentence that make a sense. But I am considering taking Tesla private for 20 and then just funding secured as a separate thing. Right. And right. it's so interesting to watch them pour over it and watch the lawyers for both sides talk about what those words mean and then explode it into like, well, I mean, come on, you can't take this seriously. This doesn't mean what it seems to mean on the surface very definitively. And like, <laughs> yeah, that. It's a class action too, right? So this ends up being, you talked about the lead plaintiff is this Glenn Littleton, but yeah, the lawyers are, they want it to be a class. And so it could end up being quite damaging financially for Musk, right? Should they find in favor of the class? Right. Yeah. So he stands to lose, you know, according to the plaintiff's lawyers, billions of dollars potentially. Is that what that's what they might be asking for in damages? Wow. I'm not sure if they're asking for anything else other than damages. I mean, Elon has already gotten into trouble for this tweet in the past. Yeah. Pretty much right after it went out, the SEC investigated it. Sorry, the Securities Exchange Commission investigated it. Mm-hmm. And they settled. Tesla and Elon Musk settled without admitting any wrongdoing. That's right. Tesla paid $20 million. Elon paid $20 million. And Elon basically promised not to like tweet dumb stuff without, you know, talking to his lawyer first, anything that could affect the market position of Tesla. He's tried to go back on that. He's tried to appeal, you know, having to get lawyer approval and and what have you. But yeah, so it's, I mean, he's already in a way paid for this, although it's 20 million to him is literally nothing. Yeah. So yeah, it it would be quite damaging financially if he were to lose potentially. Mm -hmm. And one thing people are also saying is that this could be quite damaging for his reputation. Oh, sure. Yeah. Although, I mean, all re- it's interesting about his reputation. <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> question about how much of a reputation Elon Musk has left. But yes. I, yeah, exactly. Well, it just adds to the whole, like, is he truthful? Is he trustworthy? I mean, we already kind of, you know, people who write about him and write about Tesla will take him with a grain of salt when he says, we're going to solve self-driving by the end of this year, because he said that like 13 other times throughout the past few years. But yeah, I think that a lot of that's coming to a head right now. Also, I reported on today that he, that Elon Musk had, you know, some oversight over this 2016 video of Tesla's autopilot that said it was, you know, operating without a human behind the wheel because it was driving itself. And he said no driver intervention at all or something along those lines. Yeah. Something Which, like that. No human input. Yeah. I remember I wrote about it, by the way, Mia Culpa to the listeners of the TechCrunch <laughs> podcast. I definitely wrote about this credulously in 2016, which, uh, <laughs> in my defense, <laughs> was like much more commonplace at the time for him. And, you know, we would kind of stipulate, like, oh, Elon's like, I remember not in this specific instance uh, necessarily, but like when he would make projections about like when things would happen, that was always sort of like, okay, well, we'll roll our eyes and like put in the date you said and then say like, by the way, Elon never ever is right about the dates that he says things happen. And right. But we were less cognizant of this side of him where he's like willing to just outright lie and fabricate in order to mislead people, which he's proven since that he is willing to do right so that's what yeah. apparently has happened in this right because the the 
it, it's come out now, like it was quite engineered in terms of the final product of what that video is, right? Right. And so I think that this kind of not being able to believe Elon and his many claims for what Tesla will be is is part of the reason that the stock has plunged 65% in 2022. Mm-hmm. He also said in Q3 that this would be an epic end of year. He missed Wall Street expectations for deliveries in Q4. Right. So yeah, I think that it's kind of bringing the company down back down to earth. But also, of course, yeah, when it comes to this specific trial, the U.S. District Judge Edward Chen, who's overseeing mm-hmm. um, the, the jury trial, he had already ruled last April that Musk's tweets about taking Tesla private were inaccurate and reckless. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't help this case at all. It doesn't help him as you know a credible person. And it doesn't help their case because at the end of the day, the jury will need to decide first off if Musk knowingly tweeted false information to affect Tesla's share price Two, if the tweets actually did artificially inflate the share price and three, if so, by how much. Right. So it's very interesting though, his defense, right? Like the defense side, because to me, it's like, okay, given that and given what you've told me so far about kind of their opening statements and stuff is the only defense that he can like successfully mount is that he's the sort of like he himself is a sort of credulous idiot as opposed to like a mastermind, right? Like the, cause the, the prosecution would be saying, well, he knew what he was doing and he was doing this intentionally in order to goose this price and whatever else. But his defense has to be like, no, like he thought this was going to happen. And like, it definitely wasn't, but that's okay. Like he just thought it was possible and it wasn't because he's an idiot. And, and like right. that's kind of yeah. the argument to be made, right? Yeah. It was kind of like, we all know he's a bit flippant with his tweeting. Right. Like, yeah, let's just like, you know, let's just give, he really did think that, you know, like his lawyer said his mind was pure. His tensions were sincere. He was acting in good faith. <laughs> it was all done for the mission for the shareholders. And Elon has been like, yeah, I want it to be transparent. I truly believed that this was going to happen based on conversations I had had with the Saudis And I'm just as shocked as you are that it didn't go through, right? So, yeah, and, you know, just just a note, you know, Musk lawyer Alex Spiro, you know, who says there was no fraud. He's kind of like a celebrity lawyer, just Mm -hmm. if anyone wants to look him up. He's got some high-profile clients like Aaron Hernandez, the family of Don Lewis from Tiger King, Mick Jagger, Jay-Z, 21 Savage. Mm. So, yeah, it's an interesting Interesting yeah. case we got here. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, and, and it will continue, I'm sure, to be amusing and entertaining. But it is, it's one of these things where you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, it's kind of like when he did the cave pedo thing where you're like, oh, like, this is absurd. Like, it's totally ridiculous that he finds himself in this situation and yet still has what he has in terms of control of multiple public companies, ones that are core to U.S. national energy strategy and policy, U.S. national defense policy mm. and operations. And you're like, it's it's definitely like there is no equivalent that I can think of in history where you have a figure who's involved in this kind of thing simultaneously also like perhaps the most important U.S. industrialist uh, currently active, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like he just gets away with stuff because he takes pages out of the Donald Trump populist playbook. Mm. Like sometimes when I was, when a lot of the, st- <laughs> like the early Twitter dramas were, were happening and I was reporting, I would find myself writing Trump and then be like, no, no, no Musk. Uh, <laughs> just because they are both so ridiculous on Twitter. Yes, yeah. And then you have this hardcore group of supporters who, I, and I bet if you looked at like the Tesla fanboys and like the Trump supporters, like in a, if you made that into a Venn diagram, it would become a full circle. Like I'm, right. I mean, yeah, so yeah. I, I guess just having that hardcore 
base that are, you know, the more that the media like us with our fake news decide to <laughs> criticize him, the more, you know, the more that his supporters will continue to back him. So yeah, absolutely. It's, a bit, it's a bit scary. It is a bit scary. It, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's a thing that I find funny mostly because otherwise I would be very sad for a lot of the day, but uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we're we're gonna keep watching this for sure, and we will keep reporting on it. And don't add us, basically. But thanks very much, Rebecca. It was great having you on, and always great to get updates about the wild world of Tesla and transportation in general. Yes, thank you for having me, and thank you to Tesla Reply guys. I look forward to your Twitter views. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com and be sure to use our TC Plus promo code, TC Podcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.